Bible, I would invite you to turn to the 11th chapter of the Old Testament book of Daniel, page 635 in our church Bibles. Daniel chapter 11, and in just a second or two, I'm going to begin reading from verse 2, and I'll just thank you in advance for your patience. I'm going to read through the whole chapter. Page 635 in the church Bibles, by the way, say that. Verse 2, Daniel chapter 11. Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will appear in Persia, and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will appear who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. The king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. After some years, they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance, but she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. In those days, she will be handed over together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. One from her family line will arise to take her place. He will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress. He will fight against them and be victorious. He will also seize their gods, their metal images, and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. For some years, he will leave the king of the north alone. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will retreat to his own country. His sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army, which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south will march out in a rage and fight against the king of the north, who will raise a large army but it will be defeated. When the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will slaughter many thousands, yet he will not remain triumphant, for the king of the north will muster another army, larger than the first, and after several years, he will advance with a huge army fully equipped. In those times, many will rise against the king of the south. The violent men among your own people will rebel in fulfillment of the vision, but without success." Then the king of the north will come and build up siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land and will have the power to destroy it. He will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the south. And he will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom. But his plans will not succeed or help him. Then he will turn his attention to the coastlands and will take many of them. But a commander will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back upon him. After this, he will turn back toward the fortress of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. He will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. 
He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure, and he will seize it through intrigue. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully, and with only a few people he will rise to power. When the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. With a large army, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south. The king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. Those who eat from the king's provision will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away, and many will fall in battle. The two kings, with their hearts bent on evil, will sit at the table and lie to each other, but to no avail, because an end will still come at the appointed time. The king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant. He will take action against it and then return to his own country. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again, but this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him, and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the holy covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the holy covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortresses and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. Verse 36, the king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the one desired by woman, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. Instead of them, he will honor a god of fortress. A God unknown to his fathers, he will honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He will attack the mighty fortresses with the help of a foreign God and will greatly honor those who acknowledge him. He will make them rulers over many people and will distribute the land at a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south will engage him in battle and the king of the north will storm out against him with chariots and cavalry and a great fleet of ships. He will invade many countries and sweep through them like a flood. He will also invade the beautiful land. Many countries will fall, but Edom, Moab, and the leaders of Ammon will be delivered from his hand. He will extend his power over many countries. Egypt will not escape. He will gain control of the treasures of gold and silver and all the riches of Egypt with the Libyans and Nubians in submission. But reports from the east and the north will alarm him. And he will set out in great rage to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. Thank you for your patience through that.
Let's pray together. Father, we believe that when your word is truly preached, then, God, your voice is truly heard. And that's what we need. So please, Holy Spirit, help us and open up the text to us. And, Father, make much of yourself so that all minds and all eyes and all hearts will be on you. For Jesus' sake, I ask this. Amen. Now, I read chapter 11 in in its entirety in order that you would have a sense of its complexity. It's not easy. It is a long and difficult chapter. In fact, it's the second longest in the book, the first being chapter 2. And maybe, maybe it's the hardest chapter in Daniel to understand. And so when I began this week my studies and I opened up some of my commentaries, this is what some scholars say about this chapter to Bible teachers. This is what they say. They say, don't preach this chapter. <laughs> we, <laughs> right. We, <laughs> we do not see how it could be used for a sermon or sermons. Joyce Baldwin, whose work I've grown to love, she says, unless the readers are actually serious students of ancient history... Most of the illustrations or allusions in Daniel 11 will, be com- will completely baffle them. And if we're going to be honest, I think we'd say she's right. Another, you may wrestle with chapter 11 in a Bible class, but don't try to preach it. So, <laughs> in light of all that encouragement, my first inclination was to ask myself the question about chapter 11 that many students ask about algebra, Right? Why do we need to study algebra? Is it really going to help us in the real world? So I googled that question. Algebra does help us in the real world. So I had to throw that one out. Then I said, I know what I'll do. I'll skip over a chapter 11 and I'll use the standard line. God was calling me to another place in the Bible. And I'd try that for two weeks. And then hopefully we'd get past Easter. You'd forget all about Daniel And we could just move on and, you know, be better for it. That was my second inclination. It was a really, really happy inclination. But just for a moment or two. (laughs) Because I remembered four things. First, I remembered that I am a servant of the Word. And then I remembered my Bible, 2 Timothy 3.16, right? All Scripture, pos is the Greek word, every bit of it is God-breathed. And useful for what? Well, it's useful for teaching. So I can't skip chapter 11. Then I remembered Calvin because Calvin wrote 100 pages in his commentary on Daniel just on chapter 11. Finally, I remembered one of my heroes, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, who I'm pretty sure that I'm developing a man crush on. Don't tell J.I. Packard about it. I don't want him getting jealous. But anyway, this is what Sinclair Ferguson said. He said, it's always important to cover passages of Scripture which contain material that is difficult to follow because it underlines the biblical teaching that studying the Scripture is hard work. It's hard work. I mean, devotional stuff, as helpful and useful as it is, it's not always hard work. Grab another book, you pick the book, close your Bible, get someone else to do the work for you, That's not hard work, which is why Paul tells his apprentice pastor, 
Timothy, Timothy, you know this, the wanted people. Timothy, study to show yourself approved a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, right? But correctly divides the word of truth. In other words, Paul to Timothy, Timothy, it's work. It's really hard work. Now, we said at least two other times that what is main and plain for salvation in the Bible is given to us in such a way that both the educated and uneducated, using ordinary means like reading the Bible, listening to the Bible being preached or taught, both parties, educated and un- uneducated, can understand what is to be known, believed, and heeded for salvation. In other words, the main and plain things in the Bible that speak to salvation, they come to us as main and plain and clear. That's a given. However, we also said at least two times, not everything in the Bible is easy to understand. And we should take comfort in that. Because Daniel, as bright as Daniel was, he says at least two times in light of all his visions, chapter 8, the final sentence, chapter 12, verse 8, I do not understand. That's Daniel. I do not understand. But still... Still, there are hard texts which we would be so wrong to ignore because if we let these hard texts, if we let them, they will show us good things and at the very least, they will create in us some very good habits. I'm going to give you three. The first habit is the habit of desperation. Do you know what I mean? So you come to a chapter like this and then it's this, me I'm talking about, And if you don't come with some sense of, oh my God, please help me through this. Because there's no way I'm going to be able to understand this and write things about this if you don't help. You see, that is good for us. Desperation is really good. The second thing is cogitation, which means the discipline of thinking hard. Thinking really hard, as in the case here, about the text. So loved ones, read the Gospels. At least three times, Jesus confronted Old Testament expert teachers who couldn't see what they needed to see in the Old Testament and couldn't see what they needed to see in Jesus. And Jesus rebukes them and says, Guys, you are the brightest and the best, and you should know better. But they didn't know better. They didn't think. Desperation, cogitation, and education. Okay, if I'm going to understand this, I'm going to have to pray earnestly. I'm going to have to read well. And I'm going to have to read wide. And I'm going to have to think hard. And I'm going to have to work. Really work. And what do you know? What do you know? This is how the grace of God worked itself in Daniel. I mean, I hope that you're not missing this. As we've been working through this week by week and month by month, I hope you're seeing that in our studies how God's grace, that one spirit, worked in Daniel, a polite, well-mannered, wonderful servant, highly capable, holds high office, loved by at least two pagan kings and returned that same love to those pagan kings and you had a pagan queen mother who compared Daniel's insight to that of a god and with all his successes and probably the wealth that came with it still he grows old and as he grows old he stays at God's work working hard full tilt that was God's grace 
unfolding in the life of God's servant, Daniel. And this same Daniel then, he's confronted, the first six chapters, he's confronted with all these episodes. And then now these last six chapters, he conf- he's confronted with these, all these um, mysterious apocalyptic visions is a learning, a lesson. And it's a hard lesson to learn because, because Daniel's in the thick of it, right? The lesson is God truly does rule the world. It may not seem so, but it is so. And it's hard for Daniel because he's right in the thick of it, right? So it's easy to say God rules the world when everything's going, you know, sunshine and lollipops in our life. That's easy. But when you're in the thick of it, when you're in the absolute thick of it to say that God rules the world... So if your Bible's open, chapter 10, verse 14, in light of this vision, this angel says, I've come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future, for the vision concerns a time yet to come. So he's told that. And then he's thinking out loud, if you would. Chapter 10, verse 12, uh, since this first day you set your mind to gain understanding. So because Daniel was thinking hard, it got the attention of heaven, and heaven comes down to help Daniel. And the big lesson, one of two, is all human history, personal history, global history, is under the control and under the care of God. And yeah, there's going to be conflicts here. Because guess what? Right now, there's conflicts up there in the heavens. And the two are essentially the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of evil. And it's happening right now here and it's happening right now up there. In both realms. So in light of all that information, first point this morning, in light of this, this is Daniel's reaction. So again, Daniel's being shown here something that most of us will never have the privilege to see here like this. God pulls back the veil. He shows the spiritual realms. He shows the battles which are happening up there, just like they're happening down here. And then God begins to reveal to Daniel the future And Daniel's reaction to both, but particularly the future, is one in which Daniel, now listen carefully, he completely and utterly looks away from himself. Now remember, Daniel is a type of Christ. He's a foreshadowing of the person of Christ. In other words, this is how Christ would do life if Christ was in the shoes of Daniel when Daniel was living, right? It's a constant prayer for Christians. Don't we pray that? Jesus, help me to live like like you would live it if you were living in my context. So Daniel then has a reaction. Well, let me tell you what his reaction wasn't. His reaction was not, okay, fine. You know, this is all terrible. The world's going to go to hell in a handbasket. I'm 87 years old. I'll sit it out. I've earned it. That was not his reaction. His reaction was not the Benedict option, which I read about in the New York Times three Fridays ago by David Brooks. So David Brooks writes an op-ed piece and he talks about a gentleman named Rod Dreyer who's a, who's a Catholic. And this is what he says. He says, okay, Christians and Catholics, we've lost the cultural war. You know, it's, excuse me, it's hell out there. It's terrible. So let's all become like the 6th century Benedictine monks and just hide out. Get far away from the very people who need Jesus and hide out in little Christian villas. He calls them Christian communities. I'll call them villas, right? So just hide out and get all your people together and let's just be great. 
Just be great. How foolish. And Daniel's reaction to the future is not a political reaction. Let's get our guy, let's get our girl in office, and we're going to turn this thing around. No, but Daniel's reaction to what has been revealed to him about the future is this. It is the God's glory and the good of all people's reaction. Let's get that. God's glory and the good of all people's reaction. So since this vision in chapter 11, which by the way took place two years after the return of the exiles to Jerusalem, since this is happening, this is Daniel's reaction. He stays and he prays in the place where God put him, Babylon. He's thinking and he's writing in order to prepare a people he will never know about a future which is certain and in many ways unwelcoming. And God says through Daniel's pen, if your Bible's open, chapter 11, verse 33, okay, future reader, this is what the wise person does. This is what the wise person will do. All these terrible things are going to happen. Yes, they will. Verse 33, those who are wise will instruct many. Okay, so the world's falling apart. Daniel's like, keep at it. Give understanding to the many. That's the better sense of that verse there. But there's more. This is what God's wise people also do. We didn't read it. We read enough. But chapter 12, verse 3, they will shine like the stars and lead many to righteousness. We could say lead, lead, lead many to Jesus. Okay, this is what I want you to see. This is our apocalyptic end of the world safety plan. You ready? This is it. Well, first let me tell you what it's not. Is that okay? It's not buying gold bullions. Shove them in your mattress. It's not storing up, you know, dried foods and canned goods. And by the way, don't forget your uh, can opener, right? It's not get out your charts and figure out that exact time of that great and glorious day. And it's certainly not just throw yourself out of the work and just get on that continuous loop of cake by the ocean. No, this is what God says. This is our apocalyptic end of the world safety plan. Verse 33, teach, give people understanding about the truth of God. Teach the Bible, teach about Jesus Christ. And chapter 12, verse 3, this is what wise people do. Shine like the stars as you lead many people to righteousness. That's what God says wise people do even as all these horrible things take place. So I want you to get this. The wise in Christ will have a heart that is full of affection for God and His truth. And they will have a heart that is full of affection for all of humanity. All of humanity. Now, young people, young families, and anyone else listening, get that. Get that because I can promise you, I can promise you everything in the world will come against you and I to live like that. Promise you. Last Tuesday I was reading my Bible. I didn't want to read it, but I was going to read it. I'm going through the Bible gateway, read through the Bible in a year plan. And it was in the judges. It was like, ugh. <laughs> so I had my iPad open and I looked at it. I'm like, I don't want to do this. And I walked away. And I kind of paced around for a little bit. Went back at it and, and I said, I don't want to do it. And I walked away again. You take great comfort in that, right? So then finally I said, just read it, you know. 
And so I did. And I'm, I'm glad I did because this is what I found. Judges chapter 5, verse 31. May all who love you, God, may all who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. Do you get that? May all who love you, God, be like the sun when it rises in its strength. And I'm like, that is Daniel. That is Daniel. Full tilt. Every decade. Even the hard ones. And so he's able by God's grace to rise like the sun in its strength. Because you remember, okay, what was Daniel learning? Well, he was learning God rules the world. But he was also learning this. How should people live in an anti-God environment, right? How do we live in a place or a society that is so anti-God? Well, God gave us a plan. That's why I gave the title of the sermon I gave. Let your plan speak peace to me and chase my fears away. Okay, how do we live in an anti-God environment? Uh, answer, chapter 11, verse 33. Here's what wise people do. Teach, teach people. And then chapter 12, verse 3. Shine like the stars as you keep at it, leading many people to righteousness. We could say to Jesus. It's good, right? We know what we're told. And it's always amazing to me what we're told is usually not what God says. It's like, take care of these things and all the other stuff. Does that sound familiar? Remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? The food and the clothing and all that stuff. Seek the kingdom first and all that other stuff. (laughs) Ah, it's easy. This is the hard part. This is the hard part. Okay, so I want you to, if you would, put on your thinking cap. Here's Daniel's line of thinking. It's so rational to me, and so I want to give it to you. Okay, here's his line of thinking. Since the conflict will continue until the end, okay, since the honor of God's name matters, since God is God, since people matter, since Daniel has been given so much, right, all these visions, and it was hard for him because remember in chapter 10, he passes out three times, Nevertheless, because these things are true, he will stay in the battle until his end. As the song said, no turning back, no turning back. Why? Because God has given Daniel grace, and God has given Daniel strength, and God has given Daniel a true picture of the future in order that future generations can act wisely because Daniel stays at his post and writes what he writes. So Daniel is saying, I'm telling you all this now so that all these things unfold and they will unfold. Future child of God, your faith in God will be strengthened and your roots in God will run deep, deep, right? So your faith will be strengthened and your roots will run deep. And I don't know about you, but I can't find a day in my life where I don't need that kind of strength and I don't need my roots to be pulled down, if you would, by God deep, and the truth as it is in Jesus. That's Daniel's reaction. Second point, God's declaration. Now, in chapter 11, in order to get us to pay attention to him, God makes 135 prophecies over a 400-year period, a period which covers the 6th century B.C. to the 2nd century B.C., And so what is happening here is we're invited into God's control room and we can look back to what was future to Daniel and we can see that what is predicted, if we know history, is so precise that most liberal scholars say there's just no way that 
this is prophecy. It has to be history. I mean, this wasn't written in the 6th century. It had to be written in the, the, the 2nd century B.C. Because there's no way a man could write this. And what would we say? We'd say, absolutely right. There is no way that a mere man, as good as Daniel was, could write this. But God revealed this to him. You mean like in the Bible we have revealed truth? Like in the Bible we are given truth that we would never know unless God told us so. Yes. I mean, ask yourself this question. How do we know that our sins are honestly forgiven, right? How do we know justification, that God credits us, imputes to us the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, and he sees us just as we have never sinned, even if we're in the thick of our sin? How do we know that is true? Well, I can feel it in my heart. Okay. Well, you know, people with big egos, of course it's true. It's me. I have to be forgiven. It's all true. Why wouldn't I be forgiven? But the rest of us, what do we need? We need a word from God in Christ to tell us these things. We need revealed truth from a book that's alive, the Bible, to help us. And that's what we're given here. That's what we're given. So in verse 2, this begins the Persian period. This happens two centuries before it all takes place. There are mentioned four kings. If your Bible's open, you'll see this. One of those kings, the fourth, is probably Xerxes. He ruled from 486 to 465 B.C. And history tells us, just like the Bible confirms, he had a massive, massive amount of wealth. If you've seen the movie 300, the 2006 version and the 1962 version, both versions my wife hates. But anyway, if you've seen that movie, the king in the movie, that's King Xerxes. He suffers a great loss to the Greeks at the Battle of Salamis and Batea. And between verses 2 and 3, there is this 130-year gap or leap, if you would. And then verse 3, the mighty king that is presented, we know as Alexander the Great, who verse 3 says he does as he pleases. In fact, historians writing about um, Alexander would say almost exactly what the Bible says. This is one historian, courteous. He says, he seemed to the nations to do whatever pleased him. And he did. He was unstoppable. His empire stretched from Greece to northwest India. He was unstoppable. But the reason why he was unstoppable, because God was behind it all. As God was using Alexander and his successes to serve God's purposes. And once again, in verse 4, we find that the best of men are men at best. And the Bible reveals what history confirms He appears, he's 33 years old, he is strong, he is unstoppable, he is undefeatable, he's planning more conquest, but in 323 BC, at the age of 33, he is struck with a fever and he dies. Verse 4, his empire is broken up, parceled out to the four or the four winds of heaven. And again, history records what the Bible predicts. Alexander the Great could not secure what every father desires, namely that his children would inherit in some way his achievements. All of Alexander's children will inherit nothing. Two sons murdered, wife murdered. No one to pass along anything to. Verse 4, it's split into four, passed on to his four generals. 
And of the four kingdoms, two arise as significant. We find the one in verse 5. The one is based in Egypt, which is called, verse 5, the kingdom of the south. The other is based in Syria, which is called, verse 6, the kingdom of the north. And between these kingdoms, the little land of Israel, verse 16, do you see it there? The beautiful land. And you probably picked this up when I read it. It's essentially kicked, tossed, kicked and tossed back and forth like a soccer ball. And if you know history, that's essentially what has happened to Israel. So Palomi of Egypt, the king of the south, Seleucus of Syria, who was a general in Egypt just for a time, he's the king of the north. And they are spoken of in the Bible, referred to in the Bible, before they were ever a gleam in their father or mother's eye. And to kind of give you a sense of the, the sweep of history which is taking place, verses 2 to 20, that is a period of 355 years, from 530 to 175 B.C. It begins with Cyrus, ends with Antiochus. Then, from verses 21 to 35, you're dealing with 12 years of history, 175 to 163 B.C. Now, if you're listening, you're beginning to realize that this is really similar to the vision in chapter 2 and the vision in chapter 7, bits and pieces of 8 and 9, and now we're just given a little more detail in chapter 11. And if you're thinking that, you're 100% right. And we could go on through these verses. We're not going to. We'll do some next time. We could go on. I mean, I'm well read. I could pass a history test if I had to, probably. But all these verses serve to make the point that in the 6th century B.C., the next big moments of world and political history, 400 years of it, is being laid out exactly by God to Daniel in this vision before any of it takes place. And so what does that show us? It shows us that um, if we're able to look back and if we're willing to grab a history book and we're willing to study to show ourselves approved, it would just deepen in us the assurance that yes, the Bible is true. All of it is true. You can trust this book. All of it's true. You can believe the book. You can claim its promises. You should heed its warnings. And you can hold tightly to its truth. Final point. It'll be brief. Just a couple of applications. And I'm hoping these applications will send you back to the text and maybe benefit from it. First one, pretty plain. All the kings and kingdoms of this earth are predetermined by God. They are finite, and they will exist only for a time. If your Bible is open, verse 6, he and his powers will not last. Verse 19, he will stumble and fall to be seen no more. Verse 24, the, the one who does all those evil deeds, he will do them, but only for a time. Verse 27, at the appointed time. Verse 29, at the appointed time. Verse 35, at the appointed time. Question, who is doing the appointing? Answer, God. And the reason why this is true is because evil is always unstable. Because it's grounded in our following of our own wills instead of God's will. Which means, listen carefully, which means every human institution and every human foundation is riddled with cracks. It's riddled with cracks. If you throw yourself into them, you will be disappointed. You will be disappointed because it's populated by people who will go their own way. 
Which, by the way, going our own way is one of the marks of this beast of a person in the latter part of chapter 11. So verse 36, he will do as he pleases. He will put himself over God. Verse 37, he'll show no regard for God. And loved ones, that happens every time anyone, beginning with myself, sins. In sin, we lead with ourselves. And we do as we please. And we ignore God's law. And we ignore God's truth. And we show no regard for God and disobey Him. That's what the Bible calls evil. That is anti-God. That is anti-Christ. No matter its scope. Do you understand? No matter its scope. So, the world's doing all those crazy evil things. But what am I? Me now. What am I doing on a Tuesday night? Am I anti-Godding God? Am I anti-Christ in my behavior? You see? So here's the encouragement. All evil, all evil people, all evil kingdoms are finite. They are predetermined and they have, thank God, an appointed end. Finally, rest in this truth. God is working out every one of his purposes for his people in every one of the circumstances of your life. That's Romans 8, right? I mean, I, I put in my notes, what are you dealing with right now? Right? What are you dealing with right now? God has promised something. That in every circumstance that comes our way, he's going to bring good. Somebody said, for the day will come when the world will see that God is king and he rules over everything. And in the battle now, chapter 8 of Romans, verse 35, we'll taste tribulation and distress and persecution and peril and some will face famine and some even death. And we stumble over these pains. Verse 35 of chapter 11 of Daniel, some of the wise will stumble so that they will be refined, purified, and so on. And loved ones, that, that's the wisdom of God. We probably dislike the most God using evil people and God using dark circumstances to refine and purify His people, to save His people. You mean like the cross? When an innocent man went to it for our sins? Yep, like the cross. But consider the outcome. Consider the outcome. Frederick Faber, Faber is, a, is a German hymn writer. I like him. And I was looking through his hymns and I found a line in one of his hymns, The Workman of God, and this is it. I hope it helps you. It helped me. Listen carefully. Workman of God, don't lose heart, but learn what God is like. And in the darkest battlefield, you will know where to strike. Good? In the darkest battlefield, you will know where to strike. That's Daniel. That's Jesus. May God give us the grace to be like them both. Let's pray together and thank you for your attention. Father, we thank you that we serve a king who knows our heart. And Father, since Satan 
the world and our own flesh will tempt us to doubt the wisdom of your ways or tempt us to question choosing Christ as our sovereign, thank you so much that Christ hold on us and not our hold on him will see us through. This is what we need. Amen. Those who...